Now, today is going to be a little bit different. You see, over the past month or so, we've been gathering questions from you guys. Questions about our church, questions about theology, questions about just contemporary current issues, things that are going on in the world. So we've been gathering these questions, and today we want to take some time to answer those questions because we're a church that believes it's important to be able to have space to ask real questions, challenging questions, difficult things that are on our minds. We really want to deal with these issues. And so today we're going to take some time to do that. But before we do that, right now is a really good time to do some review. You see, questions can fall into different categories, right? And Greg has talked about this, so if you're, if you're a regular Woodland Hills person, you know about his concentric circles, but if you don't come here that regularly, this might be new to you. But questions can fall into different categories. We have dogma, doctrine, and opinions. Dogma, doctrine, and opinions. And depending upon which one of these categories a question falls in, it helps us as listeners to assess where this fits into our life and what kind of relevance it has to us. Now, questions that fall into dogma, these are questions and answers that fall into things that all Christians agree with. All Christians throughout all the history of our faith have said, yep, these are things that we affirm, these are things that are true. These are things like the fact that God is triune, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Things like the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. The fact that Christ will come back and he'll restore all things and redeem all things. Those are things that fall into dogma. Things that fall into doctrine, Christians disagree about. And a lot of times those disagreements fall along denominational lines. Not always, but I think just for clarity's sake, it's helpful to think of it in that way. An example of this is one of my really good friends is a priest. He's a Catholic priest. And whenever we get together, we always argue about doctrine. Now, I don't want you to be alarmed. Um, we're not fighting. We're just arguing. And it's because we're both lawyers, and so we don't really know how to have a conversation unless we're arguing. So I don't want you to be concerned. We're, we're good friends. But we argue about doctrine. Things like, what's the meaning of the Lord's Supper? Should we do infant baptism? Those kinds of things tend to fall into doctrine. Now, the last category, opinion, might be the trickiest category. The thing is, opinions matter. And opinions are important. And quite frankly, some opinions are better than others. Some opinions we can substantiate better, truly. Um, some opinions we can base with some pretty good evidence. But at the same time, we disagree about opinions. Because usually opinions fall into things that aren't explicitly covered in the Bible. Things that it's like, well, this seems, these things seem to line up, these things seem to fit together, but we're not necessarily categorically certain about what the exact right answer of this is. So an example of this is last weekend, my roommate and I, we were watching the Olympics, and I said to her, do you think once we get to heaven, will there be any sort of competitive sports? And um, really, these are, these are the conversations that we have. Eschatology always comes up. And um, she said, no, I don't think there will be because I don't think that there's any room in heaven for competition of any kind, even friendly competition. I disagreed with her, and we both are theological nerds, so we had Bible verses that we thought supported our opinion. We had theology that we thought supported our opinion. But at the end of the day, our salvation doesn't hang on this. We're both faithful. We both love the Lord, and it falls into the realm of opinion. So, and that actually hits on probably the most important point that I want to make right now. And that's that 
no matter what we say, no matter what we think, where we fall in lines of doctrine, how well we understand dogma, what our opinions are, the most important thing is that Christ is at the center. That Christ is at the center of our life and that that's where we get our value, our worth, and our significance from. Amen? So as we take some time today to answer some questions, I want you guys to keep these categories in mind and also keep Christ at the center. One last thing before I invite these guys up here. We actually got a lot of really great questions about the marriage amendment that's coming up in Minnesota. And the pastoral team looked over these questions and thought, wow, this is a really important issue, and a lot of people are wondering about this. And they thought, you know, this is so complex. There's so many dynamics. This might not be the best venue. This might not be the best forum for answering those questions. So what if we actually, instead, this fall, took the time to talk about that issue in an entire sermon. So dedicate an entire sermon to talking about those issues and answering those questions instead of trying to do it up here today because we just don't have enough time to go through an issue that's so complex. So they thought that would be a great idea. So I want to let you guys know that if you asked a question about that, we got your question, we think it's important, and we're going to address that question, but we're just not going to do it today. All right, let's invite these guys up here. How y'all doing this morning? You look marvelous. You look marvelous. So I'm Greg Boyd here. I'm a teaching pastor, and uh, this is Paul Eddy, and he is on our board and also uh, a pastor at the church and teaches at Bethel College and all sorts of fun stuff, and he and I do a lot of work together, a lot of research together, a lot of writing together. Let's move forward a little bit here. All right. All right. And um, uh, you've been covenant bros for how, how long? 17, 18 years? Yeah, it's, we go back. 87. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's our, cool. Our first argument, 1987. Yeah, I won that one. I remember that. Yes. I, I kind of cleaned you out, as I recall. <laughs> uh, so what does that make it? That makes it, uh, what, how long? 87? A while. 97, 07. 20-some years. Whoa. Whoa. All right. Well, anyways, uh, we, we love to do this. And I really uh, appreciate having a context, a community like Woodland Hills, where uh, we are at least striving always to get our, our whole life and identity and worth and security from Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ alone. And see, when, when you have that, then you can talk about anything and discuss, argue about anything uh, without getting all heated and you know, defensive and whatever, because the only reason people get all hot and bothered about that kind of stuff is because they're getting life from it. If you get life from your rightness, then you're going to get all big and puffy when someone disagrees with you. But if all your life is from Christ, then you can do, as Paul says we're supposed to do in 1 Corinthians 16, do everything in love, right? Do everything in love. And so uh, I just appreciate the, the space we have to doubt, to question, to push back, to offer opinions and, and, and whatnot. And you don't have to agree. It's just, uh, here's the way of looking at it. Here's how we see things. So with that being said, let's dive in. Okay. All right. You ready? Let's go. Okay. Your first question. Paul, does Greg, or does Greg, does, does God, don't want to mix those up. I'm glad do, you respect me, Vanessa, but let's uh, pull back a little bit here. Do you very get in different, different things. <laughs> Good way to start off. Does God have a sense of humor? And is there any evidence in Scripture to support this? Maybe my mix-up just now supports that. <laughs> uh, does God have a sense of humor? 
Actually, I asked someone I respected theologically this question some years ago, and the response was, uh, well, of course, he made you. <laughs> I didn't find that particularly helpful. I'm just going to uh, say but, that. But I, I think he does. I, I think, uh, in fact, if you're interested in this, so frequently we get this picture of God as sort of this austere, uh, never cracks a smile, uh, always about serious business. And certainly he's about serious business. But uh, a book was written uh, oh, several decades ago now called The Humor of Christ by Elton Trueblood. And uh, in it, he, just, he goes through, through the Gospels and says, you know, we sometimes miss the, the cultural context of things Jesus is saying and doing. And in his cultural context, if you, if you kind of reimagine the world that he's doing and saying, and even in our world, some of the things he says are just really funny, you know. For example, he's talking about judgment one day, uh, Matthew 7, and he says, um, you know, uh, those, those people who, who judge others are sort of like people who have a log hanging out of their eye when they're trying to get a speck out of their brother or sister's eye. And we, we talk about that verse, but... But the thing is with Jesus, he's trying to actually paint pictures that you get this stuff in your head so you remember it, it which as a good oral teacher would do in an ancient culture. And some of the stuff he, he gets is just super funny. Like, try to imagine someone trying to carefully remove a speck in someone's eye when they got a, a, a two-by-four hanging out of theirs. This is, this is stand-up comedy stuff, all right? So, yeah, he's, he's a pretty funny guy. No, no, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. How do you support our troops and practice patriotism if you are convicted by wars and violence that are taking place? Yeah, Greg. <laughs> Let's go back to the, the comedy question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess uh, here's the balance as I see it. Is on the one hand, um, you know, we're called to love all people and, um, and, and to sacrifice for all and to pray for all. And, and, and so... One way I'd say is that, that you you love them and you pray for them, um, and I think it's uh, part of that balance is, is it's good. Uh, um, I, I always and nothing wrong with appreciating, and valuing the good in your culture. Uh, that I'm happy I live in America and I have the freedoms that I have, and I want to affirm that. And um, uh, I, I feel good about being in a country that affords us uh, this freedom. Having affirmed that, I then, on the other hand, have to realize that I'm a kingdom and my real citizen, I, I'm a kingdom person and my real citizenship is in the kingdom of God and my, my really only authority is Jesus Christ and I'm called to live according to his mandates and his teachings above all others. And, uh, uh, and so because of that, I've got to be very careful. I think we all need to be very careful uh, about being sucked in uh, to having a provincial mindset. Uh, the kind of tribalism that's kind of characterized human beings throughout all of history, where we, we begin to uh, get life uh, from the fact that we belong to this tribe as opposed to that tribe, and then we're you know supporting uh, our, our our warriors and not praying for their warriors as our uh, as our Lord commands us to, and and so I think we need to be very very careful about. I, I get worried about patriotism, honestly. Because while there's a healthy way of affirming what's valuable in your culture and appreciating that, and that's a good thing, uh, the, the, the whole history of the church certainly shows how very easy it is to get sucked into uh, a, a provincial mindset. Um, so I, I guess that's the balance I would live in, uh, is uh, pray, pray for your troops. But remember that our Lord calls us to pray for our enemies as well. And um, uh, always put our, our kingdom call uh, above 
every other sense of obligation that we have as uh, being Americans or belonging to any country that you might find yourself in. Anything you add? Amen. Amen. All right. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? <laughs> I'll leave that one to Paul. This is a complex question. Uh, I'm still praying about it personally. Greg, what do you, what do you have to say about that? The real question is, did they ever pierce their belly button? <laughs> How do people do that today? It's like, ah, I have no idea. No idea? I, 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 <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. As a dogma, he, they're dead. Why would God create human beings without belly buttons? Really behind this whole question, we could get into the whole thing about how do you integrate uh, Adam and Eve with uh, uh, the evolution and, and, and with science in general and all of that. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's a comical question, but uh, you could very quickly get into a whole lot of serious stuff. Um, and so whether they had belly buttons or not, I, actually, I, I would suspect they did uh, because uh, it would be silly for God not to create, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I really have no idea. But, but um, yeah, so there's that, there's that whole issue. And the only thing I'd say about that right now is that there's a number of different ways of doing that. I mean, everywhere, everything from the young earth creationism, where you take the whole story literally, and you take the, 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 the creation account literally, uh, and then you have to say that the majority, vast, vast, vast majority of scientists who affirm evolution are absolutely wrong. Uh, that's one option, but the other options are to read Genesis 1 uh, in uh, uh, more as a, a literary framework or other ways of, of, of finding space in Genesis 1 to put in uh, God creating through uh, evolutionary means uh, and, and then coming arriving at uh, the beings that he now is going to uh, give a soul to and making the image of God and things of that sort. So there's a number of different ways of, of uh, putting that all together. My way is right, but there are other ways that you can look into if you are interested in that. Those are more practical aspects of this question. Adam and Eve, prior to the fall, if we're talking about pre-fall, there's no clothing, at least according to the Genesis account, which means no pockets or anything. And so if there was no belly buttons, where would they keep their lint? I mean, you know, it's practical issues that we have to deal with here. Deep theology, indeed. <laughs> okay, your next question is, why pray and ask God for help if he won't interfere with our free will? How can we be blessed by God without him interfering with free will? Mm. Oh, that's good. Very good question. Very good question. You know, a, a lot of these sorts of questions depend on what categories we, we have to work with. And for a lot of folks, the only two categories they can really imagine for God working in the world is either um, God can, can absolutely do it or he can't. Uh, and and, and this, these binary ways we get into thinking. But, you know, there's, 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 if you just add a third category to this kind of question, how about not just God uh, omni-controls everything or God doesn't control everything? How about a middle category of God is always influencing things? Mm -hmm. But influence doesn't mean coercion, doesn't mean force. And so God can absolutely honor uh, human creatures' free will and still always be at work in the world, influencing, drawing, persuading, just not forcing and, and, and nullifying free will. And I think if you're a parent or have any human relationships, uh, and, and you, you realize this is what we do with each other all the time. We don't, we, you know, hope, most of us don't, you know, pull a gun out and force someone to try to love us, because then even if they did act lovingly, it wouldn't be love. But rather, we're always influencing and encouraging and challenging, and that's just what you do when you're free creatures. And I think God, uh, all through Scripture, does that very same thing. It's really good. 
Yeah, so often we think of, of I, I think a lot of Christians see prayer as sort of magic uh, because they think in the all or nothing kind of categories that Paul just mentioned. Um, and um, so either God, God did it or, or uh, he didn't do it, and then um, that leads into the whole problem of evil stuff and, and whatnot. I, 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 I think it's good to think about prayer the way um, we think about physical uh, I use the physical say so in, here in the, in the physical realm. So as Paul just mentioned, we influence one another, um, but we usually don't coerce one another. Right now, I, I'm trying to influence you with an idea, uh, but I wouldn't ever try to coerce you with it. Uh, and, and, and once you understand prayer is sort of our spiritual say-so, that's very much like our say-so, our domain of influence on, on a physical level, uh, a lot of things begin to make sense. Like, for example... Why is it that uh, you find in Scripture um, a, a kind of emphasis on uh, the value of having numbers of people praying for things? You know, there's where two or three are gathered together. You ask anything in agreement, it will be done for you. And you have people being called together throughout the Bible to pray. Why, are, why is the number of people praying uh, a, a value if it was all just God's either going to do it or not do it? Uh, well, once you understand that prayer is just work in the spiritual realm, it, that makes sense. It's no different than if I need to push a big rock up a hill. If it's a little rock, I may be able to do it on my own. But the bigger the rock is, the more I might, might need help from other people. And the more people there are and the more we're working in unison, the more we can get things done. Well, prayers like that, it's just on a spiritual version where, where God has given us a domain of say-so as the people of God to influence what comes to pass. And when we pray, we're, we're tapping into that. And uh, the more of us that are in agreement and are tapping into that, the more influence there is. Uh, to see the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven. It's important, I think, just to uh, demystify prayer and to take it out of the realm of magic and see it just as, as work in the spiritual realm, a labor of love. Are house churches truly a part of God's vision for Woodland Hills? Does it fit with us being a bridge, or is this just the vision um, of the meeting house that we've adopted? <laughs> Good question. Um, the Meeting House, uh, a church that uh, we really believe God's led us into a relationship with over the last couple of years, um, definitely puts house church, or they call them home church, uh, at the center of their vision. But um, years ago, I'm, I guess, well, back in 2000, 2001, I remember Greg came back from uh, a trip where he was spent a week in England uh, speaking to the Ichthus conference. And Ichthus is a huge network of home churches in, in England. And Greg came back from there very fired up. I remember you coming back and telling the pastors, man, we've got to get serious about small contexts in which we can really build a relationship and have the gifts of the Spirit exercise. And, and that this, is, this was what Paul meant when he said church in the, in the first century world. He wasn't thinking of something like this. He was thinking about a, a, someone's living room with 20 to 40 people in it. Um, and so way back 2000, 2001, uh, Greg and I started doing a lot of teaching in, uh, um, for our, our staff and in uh, various contexts of, I remember we went to the, our, our small group ministry one year and just did a teaching on host church and how important that was to the early church. So this has actually been a value of ours for, for a number of years. Um, partnering up with the meeting house is sort of just like finding kindred spirits here. Um, now, the tough question is, how do you do that well in a context like ours, That's which is ruggedly individualistic, uh, is used to the idea of church being something you do for an hour on a Sunday morning? Uh, we're fighting against some forces in our culture that just don't invite deep, authentic Christian community to be an easy thing to enter into. 
So it's a challenge to do that, whether in Canada, up in, whether in Toronto or down here in, in the States. Uh, we're both, as churches, wrestling with how do we, how do we ignite the idea of, of, of authentic community in a, in a powerful way. I, I, it actually goes before that. I, I remember in 1993, I think it was, uh, about six, seven months after uh, Woodland Hills first started, um, I mentioned in a message that, that the, the kingdom vision of the church is to be uh, uh, the house church and that the vision for Woodland Hills uh, was to be a network of house churches. And so it, it goes back to the very beginning. It's not at all a, uh, a new thing. And we want to affirm the value of coming together as a large group. They did that in the New Testament, Acts 5. They, they, when, they, when it was possible, they'd, be, they'd meet together in a larger group. Uh, but that, that wasn't considered the primary expression of the church. The primary expression of the church comes out of uh, a more intimate relationships that we develop as kingdom people, accept a mission, uh, and live together intentionally, and uh, share in significant ways their life together, and minister to their, their neighborhoods and, and whatever other ministries God puts on them. Uh, that has been uh, the vision uh, from, from the start. Um, we are still exploring ways to do that, uh, but uh, the vision is, is not something new at all. I'll just say this kind of as a, as a plug for Kevin Calligan, our discipleship pastor. This has been uh, at the forefront of Kevin's vision uh, for discipleship for our church uh, ever since he became discipleship pastor a couple years ago. And he is right now investing a lot of time and energy into nurturing and building uh, house churches. And really, the, if, you, if you want to explore this, the way to kind of get into this for Woodland Hills right now is through the class that Kevin and I teach on Tuesday nights called Discover the Kingdom. It's sort of the entree into beginning to explore what would it look like for us to begin to live in smaller communities like this in a more intentional way. Mm-hmm. Greg, you said... Vanessa. <laughs> Hello. You said that when we interpret Jeremiah's picture of God smashing parents and children together through the cross, we can see that God didn't actually do this, but that he merely allowed humans to do it. Is that what Jeremiah would have thought? Good question. The question is, is it related to uh, that... Um, message I gave a couple weeks ago on the shadow of the cross and just laid out sort of the tip of the iceberg of this, this thing I'm working on uh, where I'm arguing that we need to interpret everything in the Bible through the lens of the cross and that when we do that we can see things that um, um, the, the folks who were writing it in the Old Testament uh, didn't, uh, uh, didn't see. Now, that conflicts with, I, I think, uh, this person's Assumption, and in fact, it's shared by a lot of people that the, the original meaning of a passage is the meaning it's supposed to have for us. And what I'm proposing is that you no, know, the original meaning is not necessarily the, the final meaning it has for us, because we have a privileged perspective given us uh, through through the cross. Um, here's the thing: Jeremiah may not have uh, seen that God was merely allowing this. It, it's possible that in his worldview, Yahweh was capable of the kind of uh, barbaric behavior that he ascribes to Yahweh, smashing parents and children together. I read that verse uh, several weeks ago. Jeremiah uh, did not have the perspective on Christ, uh, on God that we have. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, study the New Testament and look at uh, all the ways that they cite the Old Testament. Uh, there's a, a 300 and some different citations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And ask the question, were they very concerned with the original meaning of the text? The answer you'll get is no. They take verse, they find stuff in verses, uh, and meanings in verses that the original, the original writers could not possibly have imagined. Because you see what they were doing, these folks, they knew this was the word of God, it was inspired, 
And they now knew the true nature of God in Jesus Christ. And so with those lenses on, they look at the Old Testament and they found all sorts of stuff that the folks back in the Old Testament didn't see. So the idea that we can find a, a different perspective uh, on the Old Testament uh, material that the authors themselves didn't know, that's very well, I think, grounded in the New Testament. And in fact, throughout church history, you find that uh, the church has always understood that uh, while the original meaning is one of the meanings, there's other, there's other meanings that a text can have. In fact, and throughout most of church history, theologians have held that there's at least three and sometimes four different categories of, uh, and levels of meaning that a verse can have. Uh, that only changed in the 17th century uh, when, when they adopted a secular approach to the Bible and saw this uh, kind of spiritual reading of the Bible and finding meanings that the original author didn't have, that, they, that was determined to be bogus. And so they uh, held a what's called a historical critical approach to the Bible, and now the original meaning was the only meaning a verse could have. Uh, and then that crept into the church. And so it's interesting that a lot of the evangelicals today who are insisting that the original meaning is the only meaning, they don't realize it, but they're, they're advocating a secular approach to the Bible that didn't even exist till a couple hundred years ago. And, and what, I, what, I, what I'm suggesting here, and it's part of a wider movement of uh, theologians, it's called the Theological Interpretation of Scripture movement. And uh, they're saying we have to recover the, the church's uh, traditional way of reading the Bible because it's grounded in the New Testament itself. And uh, so I, I think there's a lot of warrant, uh, given the revelation of God in Christ, for, for uh, looking at new ways of interpreting the material that we find in the Old Testament, especially when the material that we find in the Old Testament doesn't agree with the revelation that we have in the New Testament. And that's all I have to say about that. The only thing I'd add is, while I agree with, with, with what Greg said, um, part of the reason that people in the 17th century began to move away from the, the, the more uh, allegorical interpretation of, of Scripture that it really dominated the medieval church was that a lot of crazy things were being found in Scripture. Uh, you know, I mean, I wouldn't want to, for example, take someone to, to hear what Greg just said and then condone what, uh, for example, um, who's the guy at Waco? Uh, oh, yeah, the Waco guy. Um, David Koresh. David Koresh. I mean, David Koresh turned to Revelation chapter 5 and began to read it very creatively and determined that he himself was the branch of David, the son of God. Not probably the meaning he, he was supposed to get out of that text. And I wouldn't want him to take Greg's and go, well, we're allowed to get creative. And Yes, we are allowed to be spirit-led and to see things the original authors maybe didn't see, but there is a place for also asking the question, what, what could possibly this text mean Good. in light of Christ, but also having some historical constraints? So I think there's a balance here. Mm -hmm. like, it's, it's always helpful to know what did the original text mean to the original author, but then also, as Greg's saying, but what could it mean through the lens of Christ? Yes. Not through the lens of David Crest thinking he's Christ, but through Jesus Christ himself. In church history, the, the, the rule has always been, the, the, the parameters has been, it's all supposed to be read through Christ. Everyone's always affirmed that. Christ is the center of it. And then the rule, what they called the rule of faith, which was basically the dogma uh, of, of the church. Whatever interpretation you find has got to be consistent with, with that. What is your personal opinion on whether people should be cremated or given a regular burial? Does our church hold a stance on this? Uh, the church doesn't hold a stance on it, so far as I know. Am I wrong on that? I don't think we have a, a it's not in our statement of faith. So, uh, <laughs> but we, I, 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 my own personal opinion is that uh, that's up to the individual. I know there's some folks who, um, uh, for some reason, feel like cremation is, is something ungodly. 
Um, and um, yeah, there's something wrong with it. I've had people uh, argue that. But the thing is, is you're going to be cremated anyways. It's just a matter of time. <laughs> you can do it the fast way or the slow way. Um, and for a lot of reasons, not least of which is expense, um, but also just the idea of being mummified in, in a casket, uh, I, I, I would go cremation. Uh, I, I, some people in the early church wondered uh, about like what happens when, when, lion, when Christians were fed to lions and there's four different lions that got parts of their body. How's God going to put the whole thing back together again? And, and that's what some people who are you know, against cremation sort of think of like, you don't give God anything to work with. But see, I think God can handle that. I, I think uh, if he can't, then the older, the, the, the longer ago a person died, the harder it is for God to resurrect them. And I really don't think that's a, much of an issue for God. My own opinion. You agree? Yeah, I, I would uh, agree with that. <laughs> Actually, the whole idea of preserving the body and all that, it, it, it comes, so far as I can tell, I haven't done a lot of research on this, but I think it comes out of ancient Egypt. Have you ever read that? The whole idea of mummification, and, and there's a lot of kind of pagan theology around that. And, and the whole idea of like spending a lot of money on a casket to preserve your loved one, whatever. Wow, I can't imagine a, a, a greater waste of money than to uh, slow down the process. You know, it's the things that destroy the body anyways are usually the, the kind of the, the maggot eggs that we carry around with us. And when we die, we're in the casket. Do you know this? That they, they, they start to okay, Greg, that's, uh, that's, grow and, that's and they eat the body from the inside. So you can't protect your loved one from the maggots. They're going to get it anyway. So I say just get burned up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In Romans, what does the Apostle Paul mean when he says that Pharaoh was created for wrath? Romans 9. Yeah, you know, um, Romans 9 is an interesting Slash. passage. Interesting passage. I, 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 if you read Romans 9, uh, just sort of off the cuff, without any sort of contextual knowledge about what Paul's trying to do or or particularly contextual knowledge about the fact that he's quoting and alluding to Old Testament passages all through there. It's one of the most dense uh, uh, part of Paul's letters where he's quoting Old Testament passages. If you just sort of forget that and read it off the cuff, it sounds like God is this arbitrary cosmic tyrant who's just hating Esau and loving Jacob for no particular reason and hardening Pharaoh's heart, uh, and, and then he's, he's being a potter, next couple of verses, and creating some human beings to smash and destroy and be wrathful on, and others to have mercy on for no particular... It just sounds like, a, like he's out of control. Um, but if you read it, I would propose, in context, both of what Paul's doing in chapters 9 to 11 in Romans, and reading the Old Testament verses that he's quoting in the context of their Old Testament passages, everything changes. Um, so the, what Paul's dealing with in Romans 9 is the question that Jews are asking him, why are the Gentiles all coming into the church? God promised us, the Jews, that, he would, that we would be the covenant people. Isn't God faithful? And so Paul's answering this question for the Jews. And he's showing that God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and God can do and fulfill his promises any way God wants to. And then he uses several examples from the Old Testament to explain this. One of them is Pharaoh. And in this text, he says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But every Jewish person who knew Exodus and the story of Pharaoh knew that it wasn't just that God came along and took a very soft, tender-hearted Pharaoh and made his heart hard, right? What it says in the three times before it ever says God hardened Pharaoh's heart in, in Exodus, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So it's not that God is taking a soft heart and making it hard. It's that God is taking a hard heart 
that's refusing to work with God and saying, hey, I can use you in that state if you want to be that way. And so God's strength, and actually the word literally doesn't mean to take something soft and make it hard. It means to take something in its state as found and strengthen it. I think a, a good image here for this word is to, like when you, when you uh, take a piece of clay and put it in a kiln and fire it, it simply firms or hardens what is already there. It, it's not making something soft uh, hard. It's taking what Pharaoh was and going, okay, freeze frame right there. I'll use you like that. Very similarly, uh, when God says a few verses earlier um, that he loved uh, Jacob and hated Esau, you go, well, gosh, well, that sucks to be Esau. Sucks here is a technical Greek term meaning not to be good. And as in to create a vacuum. <laughs> but, but notice, he's quoting Malachi there. And Malachi 1, when it talks about God hating Esau and, and loving Jacob, it says in the very next verse that, that, that he's talking about Edom, a nation, and, and Jacob is representing Israel. He's not talking about individuals. He's talking about two nations. He's talking corporately. And so we're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about individuals. We're talking about God using two different nations in different ways. One, Israel, is the line through which God will bring Messiah. Edom, no, not, that's not going to be the line. doesn't mean they're going to hell. doesn't mean anything about that. And so getting back into the original context, the original passages, really helps clear up a lot of what, what's going on in Romans 9. A really important question because that, that, that passage has messed up... Uh, more people's minds than just about any other passage of scripture because you really get this picture of uh, here, here's God there's one lump of clay and then uh, the way they read it is what if God wants to then just unilaterally on his own make some vessels of dishonor and then make other vessels for honor so they, they take this to be the saved and the unsaved and then what if God willing to show his mercy on the, the vessels of honor were to then judge and harden the, the ones who, who uh, he made for dishonor so here's God making two sets of, of, of little clay figurines, picture like that, and he smashes these bad ones for being the way that he made them in order to turn to the good ones and say, now, aren't you glad I had mercy on you? And if any child was acting like that with their clay, we'd want them to get to see a therapist really quickly because <laughs> that, that's, that's pretty jaded. And then folks are, are, are supposed to say you know, that that is all glorious and loving and beautiful because if you don't say that, well, then maybe you're one of the vessels for dishonor. Uh, and, and, and who he made for destruction, and that 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 messes that messes with with your head, and um, does a lot of nasty stuff. If you look at Jeremiah 18, which is the only passage in the Old Testament that uh, flushes out what what does it mean for God to be the potter and us to be the clay, and you have a whole you know chapter here which is based on that image, and you'll find there that uh, you know God took Jeremiah and took, brought him to the potter's house. So this potter was making this one kind of a vessel, but the clay wasn't very pliable, so the potter wisely changed his plans and made a different kind of a vessel. Uh, and then the Lord says to Jeremiah, now go tell the people that I am the potter, you are the clay. And then he says, I have decreed destruction that's going to be coming on you. And see, the, the, the Jews at the time were saying, it's no use. Look at verse 12 of that chapter. They're saying, it's no use. We're goners. He's decreed it. And God says, no, go tell them that though I have decreed that judgment is coming. If they'll change and repent, then I'll change. And, and it, it, at any time, if I, if I promise blessing on a nation, but then it turns evil, well then, even if I promise blessing, that's going to change, and I'll bring destruction. So the point of the potter clay analogy is the exact opposite of what these folks are reading in Romans 9. The point of the clay, clay, clay uh, potter analogy is that God is flexible. 
God is flexible. And whatever he does with clay is wise. Even if we don't see it, it's wise. Uh, but it's, it's not a unilateral, flexing your muscle, look what I can do kind of a thing. Uh, when you understand it, and it's a context with Jeremiah 18, it creates a beautiful picture of God. Uh, whereas the other one creates, uh, with, uh, frankly, a, a rather demented uh, picture. Um, and so it's important to get that one right, I think. Yeah. Greg. Yes. How was your walk with God tested when raising your son with a disability? Do you have any verses or words of faith that would help some others who are in the same situation? Hmm. Well, um, uh, I mean, I, I think raising children uh, in general um, is, is, can, can test your faith and can, uh, and can be used by God to uh, grow you uh, and used by the enemy to destroy you, uh, whether they're disabled or not. Uh, you know, some kids are just very easy and other kids are not. Um, and so having a child with, with, with disabilities can present unique challenges depending on the severity of, of uh, the, the, the challenge. I mean, one of the things that, that uh, people who, with uh, kids with disabilities uh, sometimes face uh, that's unique is uh, when you pray uh, for healing uh, or for uh, just wisdom on how to deal with, with your child. And sometimes that doesn't come through. And it can lead to a lot of questions and a lot of frustration. Um, Shelly and I went through a period where uh, our son wasn't, didn't get a definitive diagnosis on his autism until uh, he was about 12. He had a lot of misdiagnoses uh, that went on, um, which sent us down some wrong rabbit trails. Um, and because he's so borderline, it was just hard to really get a definitive diagnosis. Once we got it, it really reframed everything, changed everything, was very helpful. And you say, oh, well, wonderful, that's great. But the question then was, it would have been so hard for God to have given us some insight into that when he was three. Because it would have really would have changed a lot of things. Uh, and, and so there, there are unique questions like that that raising a child uh, with, with disabilities can, can uh, present. Um, but I, we found, and I think all kingdom people raising children with disabilities or just strong-willed children, what you find is that, that uh, um, if you stay pliable in the Lord's hands and are always seeking his wisdom... Um, and, and really you know, just being committed to uh, uh, walking under the Lordship of Christ, all of those adversities can be used for good. God, the promise is Romans 8.38, that in all things, uh, with all of our kids, able to disabled, easy to raise, hard to raise, in all things, God's working together. He's always working it together for the better for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Uh, and he's, he's doing it for them because those are the folks who are going to be seeking him to do it. He would love to do it with everybody, but only those who, are, who have said yes to the call are seeking his wisdom on these things. And so uh, we found that while there's times where that can be very, very trying, and there's a lot of, lot of, lot of tears uh, that, that can be shed, um, God has used it to teach us things uh, and to grow us and to grow us together and expand us in ways that ne- it never otherwise would have happened had we not had our, our beautiful and, and uh, a very unique son uh, to raise. Okay, we're going to try to sneak in two more questions for today. So keep that in mind when answering. <laughs> if we shouldn't be focused on our behaviors or practices as getting us closer to God, what's the place of spiritual disciplines? Is character building a false concept? Uh, good question. No. You know, so frequently, I think, uh, questions about our relationship with God, um, right out of the gate, how we frame them, like kind of what, what is the background in which we frame them. And I think something Greg's reminding us of, us of constantly here 
is that two of the common paradigms or models by which Christians have asked this, this type of question uh, are one, a sort of uh, judicial court model, and another, a loving relationship model. And this kind of question is going to be framed very differently depending on which model you're coming from. If you're kind of thinking of God primarily as a judge and us primarily as defendants, um, then once the not guilty verdict is proclaimed, then you're sort of, you're off, you know? And, and I don't think a lot of folks, when they walk out of the court uh, of Minnesota, having, having just became, you know, declared not guilty, are deeply concerned about how do I now reform my life to reflect that verdict? It's like, I'm free, you know, just go and do whatever. But man, if you're in a love relationship, and let's say you and a good friend of yours, a lifelong committed friend, and, and you've just hurt that person, and that person comes to you and says, you know, I forgive you. I hope your response isn't, oh, excellent, I can do anything I want to you now. No, when someone forgives you in a love relationship context, it's supposed to melt your heart. <laughs> it's supposed to cause you to say, how can I not wound you again the way I just did this? And this is, this is what I think Jesus is assuming we know, is that the context that the Bible has framed our relationship with God in is a covenant love relationship. Now, as God uses the image of a judge sometimes, yes. Sometimes that image is used to communicate some things about uh, justification and things. But the primary image is, is a covenant love relationship. And so when God comes to us and speaks forgiveness into our lives as his followers, part of what it's supposed to do is call us to want to become the people that we're called to be in Jesus Christ. And spiritual disciplines is just one of the ways of enabling us to begin to allow God to shape our character into the image of Jesus. Um, in the same way that if I'm a loving friend or a loving husband, I want to think of ways to position and, and, and respond to my life to become a better friend or to become a better spouse. So with Jesus, our heart's desire should be how do we as the body of Christ become a better bride to our groom Jesus Christ? And I think spiritual disciplines is part of the way we can do that. The only thing I'd add to that uh, is that um, it also helps to have a big picture framework for this one of the reasons why some people just aren't motivated to uh, engage in spiritual disciplines and cultivate their character is that they don't see the end game. They don't see the ultimate purpose for it. Uh, they need to understand that, yeah, I should because I, I love Jesus, but you know, beyond that, what purpose does it serve? But see, we are. if you're in the kingdom, then God is at work in your life to uh, raise you, raise all of us, uh, up to be co-rulers. We are the bride of Christ, and we're the bride of Christ that's supposed to rule with Christ. Um, and then throughout eternity to be the, the kingdom of God, the dome of which God is, is, is king. And, um, and so it's not just about our being you know, kind of legally uh, uh, allowed to go into heaven um, with uh, the kind of the acquittal thing, but it's, it's about our, our, our getting our characters equipped. Nothing unclean can enter the kingdom, uh, it, it says in Revelation. So our characters need to be formed and made compatible with God and consistent with God. And this is, this is a non-negotiable. This is, this is the, the, the end game here. And we understand that, that it's very important that we are now in, in being raised up for that purpose. It really reframes everything and can give a passion uh, to our not just believing in Jesus, but our walking with him and getting our characters formed and transformed into his image. All right. I want to thank all of you guys for your really excellent questions. There were so many, and I just... I'm really grateful for your participation and the fact that you guys have minds that are curious. 
We're at our last question, but I want to encourage you guys to download all of the sermons because we're not repeating any questions. So if your question wasn't answered during this service, it might have been answered during another service. So make sure that you check those out. All right, your last question, gentlemen. In the story of the prodigal son, I feel more like the older brother than the younger son. Are there any passages or pictures from the Bible that show God's love for me as much for the younger son? Mm. You know, I, I, I get... Uh, I over the years confronted a number of people on a regular basis, especially after I, I give my testimony, you know, and about my sort of hellion uh, early years and, and stuff like that. Um, a number of people who have almost expressed a sort of jealousy uh, because they don't have that kind of testimony, that radical conversion. You know, they're raised in the church and they've always kind of been, you know, just by their personalities, kind of more compliant and. Um, uh, and so they almost wish that I would have had those sinful years so that now I could stand and say, oh, God saved me from debauchery and drugs and all the things that Greg Boyd did. Uh, but no, but see, and so I really get that question. And it's one that I, I'm really, I'm glad I've had people push back on that because it wouldn't occur to me to uh, you know, think about in, in those ways. But, you know, if you look at just, just that story of the prodigal son, it's, it's interesting. Um, he didn't run away like the, the younger son did. Uh, he was obedient. He was compliant. He stayed there. He was faithful. All of that. Um, but it's really clear in the in the parable itself that the father loves him as much as he loves the son that went away. In fact, you know the the, the son comes back and the father says, "Kill the fatted calf and you know put the ring on him and the robe on him and all that." And the brother hears about it and gets jealous and he's out in the field. And then the, the father comes out there and says the father pleaded with him, pleaded with him. Uh, to come in. And then the son says, well, you never killed the cat for me. And, uh, and I've been slaving for you all this time, which shows he, he had you know, a, kind of a misconception of the father's character. I've been slaving for you. And then the father says, what? what? Don't you know that I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. You're, you're worried about a fatted calf? You can have all the calves. It's all yours. And so we need to hear that. Yeah, the way God's love is expressed is different towards the prodigal son who went away and is now coming back. But it's not better than it. It's not, it's not graded here. Uh, he loves this son just as much. And, and so we need to always keep in mind that, just like we always say that, you know, there's no gradation scale on sins where we can kind of have a sin competition of who sins worse and, and whatever. No, sin is sin. Um, and uh, in, in the same way, God's love isn't graded according to how sinful a person has been. God's love, I mean, God is love. It says First John 4, 8. And love is defined by Calvary. John says that here's how we know what love is. He, he gave his life for us. So God is in his very being the kind of love that's expressed on Calvary. And that love is a perfect love. It's an unsurpassable love. So it can't be improved on and it can't be detracted from. So just know that God, however good you've been, God loves even you. <laughs> as much as he does uh, the prostitutes and the Greg Boyds and the Paul ladies of the world. Okay? His love is, is unsurpassable towards you. All right. Hey, thanks for the questions. I, 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 good questions. Really good. Amen. Really good. Excellent. Father God, you are the air we breathe. And Lord, we just thank you that uh, here in this family at Woodland Hills we can come together through hard questions and challenging questions out on the table. We can wrestle with them. We can use the brains that you designed for us to have and uh, live in this complex world, and we can wrestle together. But, Lord, at the center of it all, we, we just confess, 
is, is your son, Jesus Christ, Amen. and is the revelation that he gave Amen. us of you. And that, that is our anchor. Always. Lord God, thank you for the gift of being in Christ, regardless of how we feel. Um, and Lord, just continue to draw us deeper, deeper, deeper into trust, trusting covenantal love relationship with you, God. That's, that's, that's the point of it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and build a kingdom. Amen.